Hi, you're listening to The Cardigan, a special series from Selfie, focusing on the intersection of psychology and self-care. I'm Kristen, a licensed therapist, a skilled catastrophizer, and mom of four. And I'm Matthias, a licensed therapist, side-eye aficionado, and a dog dad. We're going to be taking your mental health questions, chatting about our own journeys, and looking at psychology in the media. We hope you learned something about yourself, the people you love, and the world of mental health and maybe laugh a little along the way. So go grab some tea and your favorite cardigan and we'll meet you on the couch. Hey guys, well today we have a really great interview for our listeners. Um, I am interviewing Dr. Nancy Dome. She is the author of Let's Talk About Race. And we had such a good conversation. I hope you will give it a listen. Um, I thought that this was a great way to kind of round out our last episode here in Black History Month. But she is an incredible educator and talks about communication styles um, in terms of having hard conversations that as a therapist, I just adore it. So that is coming up, but first we're going to do our mental health check-in. Hey, Matthias. Hey, Kristen. How has your mental health been this week? It's been all right. Yeah? I, I know, like, a, a few weeks ago we were talking about sleep. Yes. <laughs> like, and insomnia. Always. And all of those things. I, I have started to wonder, and, and this will sound obvious the moment I say it, but, like, I recently switched probably two, three months ago to watching more TV at night instead of reading. So mm-hmm. I feel like I go in these cycles of yeah. reading before bed or watching TV before bed. I'm back in a TV before bed. I think I was even talking about binging TV, like, and beginning to wonder <laughs> if that's affecting my sleep. <laughs> I'm getting curious about this. <laughs> Which, like, I'm sure the answer is yes. <laughs> Yeah. Easier said than done to switch back to a non-screen thing. Now, when you're bed. reading in bed, are you reading an actual paper book, or you, or you're doing a like a paper white? Yeah, I'm using that that e-reader, non-backlit. Yes, right. you're not. That's yeah. right. You have that. So yeah. I forgot about yeah. that. And yeah, so that doesn't bother my eyes. There's no blue. Yes. light with it. Yeah. If yeah. you're watching TV, what kind of a TV are you watching on? Just like I like my TV. Yeah, a regular TV. You're not <laughs> watching on like an iPad or something. No. Hmm. Yeah. Although I moved, I did move all of my devices to the what do they call it? The night shift filter on yes. on Apple devices. Yes. Uh-huh. And I turned that up to like the full warm. <laughs> so it's like yellow. It, it is yellow. <laughs> like everyone is like if I watch a YouTube video, like everyone's like orange. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it does I've noticed it does help my eyes at night. Yeah. Mm. You know, what's funny is we, you know, we do that home swap thing and mm-hmm. the family that we swapped with in San Francisco Right next to their TV, they had a basket of yellow glasses. And so okay. they had a rule where their whole family, if they watched television at night, would put those yellow glasses on. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I have not tried that, but I would be curious. I'd be curious too. I find, for me, I find TV does not bother me as much as like watching my phone. Sure. Yeah. That feels true. Because it feels like it's not, like, in my eyeballs as much. Right. And I also have a tiny TV. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is your TV pretty big? It is pretty big. Yeah. Yeah, I have a pretty big TV. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's tough. Do you find, when you're watching TV, do you find that you'll stay up later to, like, watch another episode? Or is it just that your brain doesn't shut off as easily? 
Yeah, it, it's more the brain not yeah. shutting off. Like, I, I'm pretty good. Unless there's a show that I am really pulled into, mm-hmm. which probably happens maybe twice a year. Yes. That I will binge something and stay up super late watching. Yeah, that you just become a disaster about. Right. But most of the time, you know, 9, 9.30, 10 comes around and I'm like, oh, I'm ready for bed. I don't even care to finish this episode. I'll just turn it off. Yes. Yeah. I fully blame Ozark for um like two three weeks ago me not being able to sleep because <laughs> we just binged it like i hate when they just dump all the shows at once yeah uh-huh. i don't have the self-control for that that's right <laughs> what's the last show that you did like you know stay up too late watching oh it's been so long i don't even remember oh really yeah look at you self-control i i mine is like two weeks ago <laughs> It was probably like Stranger Things, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I don't remember when that last season released, but I think that was it. it. Was I stayed up very late for that one. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. And can't wait for a new season. But I I gave up on that show after the first season. Did you? Okay. I don't I, like fantasy. Okay. I like some, like that kind of fantasy I can, I like. When we go off into the realm of like elves. Yeah, I don't care for that either. I'm not typically there. I don't care for that either. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't like any of that. Right, but like scary monsters. I I can deal with that. (laughs) It's so funny. (laughs) What about you? How, How have you been this week? Well, my mental health check-in is also related to sleep. So (laughs) you know that I have taken a new job where I work at on-site once a month. Mm -hmm. And so once a month, I go to this gorgeous retreat center and I do four-day marriage intensives. So it's it's kind of like a, you know, it's an intense job. It's an all-day thing. We have to sleep there because it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. But it's also a little bit like summer camp because I'm there with other therapists that I really like. And we all Mm -hmm. have a house. And again, beautiful. So I really love this job. I I love it. I feel well-suited for it. Um, I kind of like that it's, you know, this intense thing. And then I'm, you know, kind of – not that I'm free. I still see clients. But, um, you know, that it just – there's an ending to Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Um, here's the issue. The place that it's at is at a high altitude. It's kind of up in the mountains. It's not, Mm. yeah, it is kind of up in the mountains. Um, it's at a pretty decent altitude and I cannot sleep every time I'm there. Oh, every time. That's rough. So I'm really struggling because I love this job, but there's really not an option to not sleep there. No. Because it's in the middle of nowhere. Right. And every time I go, I come home so tired. Oh, Kristen. Yeah. That's so hard. I, like, especially doing intensives. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's already draining and then right. not to be able to sleep. Right. Oof. I know. So I'm feeling really defeated about it because I don't, you know, I, I want to be able to keep doing it. Um, mm-hmm. But it's rough. What have, like what have you been trying to mitigate it? So this last time I went out there, I used I took with me this oxygen stuff, like okay. it's in a can. 
Because, you know, that's the issue with with insomnia at a high altitude. It's a lack of oxygen. Right, right. Um, And so I took this. It's not like an oxygen um, tank, you know, like someone with with a lung disorder would use. It's called Boost, and it, it looks like a hairspray bottle. And you can kind of, like, hold it up to your nose, and you breathe in extra oxygen. Oh, huh. And so I took that with me, and I... And I used it, but you know, at the end of the day, once you go to sleep, you can't have that in your face. <laughs> right, right. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. So that didn't work. <laughs> so my next thing I'm curious about is buying an oxygen concentrator, which is like what someone who maybe did have a lung disorder would use or someone with with um, sleep apnea because I guess the issue with insomnia at high altitude is a similar mechanism to sleep apnea that happens for people at regular altitudes. Hmm. Hmm. So anyway, I can buy an oxygen concentrator, but then you have to like put the cannula on your nose. Right, right. And they're like three, four hundred dollars. But I'm deba- I'm debating. I'm debating it. I mean, if it helps you sleep. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't know. That's where I'm at right now. So any listeners who have any bright ideas about have you this tried, have you ever tried those oxygen i've only ever seen these but oxygen droplets that you like put in water no i am i making this up have you even heard of those no okay Mm-mm. i think i think they're a real thing <laughs> <laughs> for high altitudes i don't think i'm making this up and they're like droplets that you put in water. no yes it, i'm seeing it yeah liquid yeah. oxygen uh-huh. okay and apparently i have heard wonders about that for just like altitude sickness i don't know that it would help with insomnia i might try that i'm willing to try anything at this point and it's a very different insomnia than i normally have um because usually i have trouble falling asleep and that's related to anxiety but then once i fall asleep i can sleep the insomnia i have when i'm there is that i'm like not really sleeping the whole night yeah like i'm in a light sleep the whole night and i'm just waking up waking up waking up Yeah. That's awful. Pretty bad. Yeah. Anyway, yes. Anybody who has ideas, I am all ears. What do you have for two thumbs up today? Yeah. So are you into pens? Like like writing? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So Very snobby, very picky. Yes. Totally. Yeah. So my friend gave me this pen by a company called Retro 51, which I don't love their branding. (laughs) I judge everything on their branding. So I'm like, their branding isn't great. The pen Are the fonts bad? They are. I mean, they're like, they're trying the retro thing, but they're using, you know, like a font designed in 2000 that like everyone is, anyway. That's funny. But this pen is called a Tornado Pen by the company Retro 51. Mm -hmm. I love it so much, Kristen. Why? Tell me. It has a good weight to it. So uh-huh. it's really nice to write with. It fits really well in my hand. And then the ink is just so smooth in it. Like, hmm. I used it at my friend's house first, and he had one. And I was like, what is this pen? <laughs> I need this. <laughs> and then he, he you know, gave me one a couple of weeks later. I I, I love it. it. So my two thumbs up is, is for this pen. It has, you know, refillable cartridges. Mm-hmm. I've bought a few of those at this point. I just refill it whenever it's out. Nice. And it it's great. And it's relatively affordable as far as, like, you know, quote-unquote yeah. fancy pens go. Yeah. yeah. And it's a rollerball. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. You can also am, buy different... I'm loyal to felt tips. Okay. 
Are you? I'm a felt tip girl. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Skinny felt tip. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I have obsessed over felt tip pens, but this one converted me Interesting. to Okay. Yeah. I might have to try this. It's it's pretty great. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I love that we're both pen nerds. <laughs> yeah. So that that's it. I lo- I love that pen. All right, mine today is so I have an issue with buying lighters, like candle lighters, you know. Uh-huh. Yep. Because we always buy like the fireplace ones, but you can't like I they just feel wasteful. Uh-huh. I feel like we go through them really fast. Yep. So then I bought like a butane one, but then you can't order butane online because they won't ship it. Mm-hmm. So then I feel like I'm forever like out of butane. <laughs> so I finally found an electric candle lighter. Mm-hmm. Have you seen these? I think so. I don't know why this is so novel to me. Yeah, exactly. It's Uh like a little tiny taser. Um, And so, you know, you can just recharge it with, you know, your, your cord for everything else. Yeah. Um, And I really like it because then I'm like, I'm never running out because I feel like I'm forever trying to light a candle with an empty fireplace lighter. (laughs) That's real. Yeah. Like we will have like a drawer with four of them in there and they're all empty. None of them work. Yep. Yes. So I am loving the electric rechargeable candle lighter. I'm and curious, I- do, do your kids use it as a taser? <laughs> you know, they have not in front of me. Okay. But that does feel like inevitable, right? Yeah. I mean, that's my urge. I, I don't have one, but I have friends who have one. And I get I have never done this, but it is the urge every time I pick it up. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. Every time I pick it up, I'm like, what if I just touched it to my finger? Yeah, what if I just did this right? You're like, <laughs> Right? But like, do you think it would just shut itself off? I would hope so. Yeah. But I doubt it. I feel like I would hurt myself. I know. Yeah. My, ki- <laughs> my kids want to get a taser. And I'm like, no. <laughs> Why would I buy you a taser? Idiots. Like, I know exactly what you would do with that. Yep. <laughs> I've seen Jackass. No. <laughs> Buying you a taser. Oh my gosh. No, in fact, I won't let my kids have lighters in their rooms because they're stupid. Yeah, it feels really smart. Yeah. Yeah, because like, you know, you'll come downstairs and be like, what's that burning smell? And they're like, uh, I was just burning paper in my room. You're like, why? Right. I don't know. Right. <laughs> just so, yeah. watch the world burn. No. Mm. All right. Well, let's hear from Dr. Nancy Dome. Well, I am really excited to be chatting with Dr. Nancy Dome today. Hey, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Good, good. Well, you're the author of a new book, Let's Talk About Race and Other Hard Things. Mm -hmm. First of all, I just have to tell you, I loved this book. And it was a little different than I thought it would be just because Mm -hmm. I'm a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. Um, I work particularly with couples. And so communication and conflict resolution is something that I'm talking about all day, every day. Yeah. And this book did such an amazing job, not only in terms of educating us on how we can better talk about race, Mm -hmm. but there were, I was like jotting down notes (laughs) as I was reading just about communication style. Like Mm -hmm. there, there were so many aspects of it that 
of course it fits in our conversations around race and other difficult things, but like, man, just talking, how we talk to one another. That's right. And I think that we, we have kind of moved away from this idea that we should be respectful to each other, regardless, like we each deserve to yeah. be respected when we're spoken to. Yes. And, um, and even if you don't agree, it doesn't mean that we have to, you know, kind of take the stances that we've seen more recently yeah. um, being taken. Yeah. So, I mean, I wanted to just, you know, frame like, what made you decide to write this book and this book now? Because I feel like we're in this really interesting stage where we had a national conversation about race a year and a half Mm -hmm. ago, right? Suddenly people who have never talked about race on their social media platforms are posting about it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, George Floyd kind of thrust this topic into the national discourse. And then what I've noticed is then we're kind of circling around to this sort of backlash or tension where now people are pushing to not talk about race Mm -hmm. as much. Like let's Mm -hmm. ban some books. Let's Mm -hmm. make a fight about critical race theory. That's not Mm -hmm. even based in reality, Mm -hmm. you know? So (laughs) what was this like to write a book about race in the middle of all of this happening around us? So uh, the book was really an outcome of work that I've been doing for over a decade. And so Compassionate Dialogue and the RIR protocol existed and it was the foundation of the work that I do at Epic Education. Mm -hmm. And so really the impetus was that our clients were saying like, this is great and we love it, except for when we're not in the room with you, mm-hmm. we forget how to yeah. practice. Like, it's how, do we great take this out? how do we take this out? And so um, I just kept getting a request and, you know, more and more requests about providing support. So we started off with our conversation starters, which let you practice the protocol. And then it just was, it just made sense. It was like, it's time for a book uh, to really put it down there. And I had enough case studies Mm -hmm. in the last six years of people using it and and using it effectively, Mm -hmm. um, not just individually, but throughout their organizations where they saw such huge um, shifts in their culture and climate that yeah. I thought, well, this is the time because now yeah. I've got I've got all that information, that anecdotal um, data that really shows that the protocol works and adding compassion to it just makes us better, you know, human beings as we communicate with each other. So we have right. to communicate, but we get to choose how. Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciated, you know, your focus on compassion, mm-hmm. um, but and also yeah. talking about hard things because yes. I feel like a lot of times people misunderstand that these can happen together. Absolutely. I think that, I think they, the minute you talk about race, I mean, literally I was, I was getting married, my husband's white and I had a engagement party and my friend who did the engagement party being cute, did chocolate and vanilla cupcakes. And the kid I was mentoring said, wow, that's really racist. And I had to have a conversation to explain to him that noticing our differences yeah. is not racist. The, yeah. the differences aren't the problem. It's people's judgment about the dis- differences that are the problem. So, totally. so, you know, for me, it was, it was really about, we need to normalize that this is a, a part of our daily dialogue, our identities. There's nothing more important to us than our identities, what we believe and what we feel. And so why should I be ashamed to talk about my race? Or why should you right. be ashamed to talk about your race? Why is white a bad word? Why is black a ba- bad word? Mm-hmm. You, know, we, you know, we say it under whispered breaths and, and really we should be celebrating and be joyous about the fact that yeah. this is who we are. And it's this 
variety that makes us better together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've had some funny um, instances like that too, because two of my kids are black. And so mm-hmm. I've had that experience of, you know, when they were little being at a playground and like, there's this sea of kids over here. And, and some mom is like, which are your kids? And I'm like, oh, the black kids, <laughs> you know, that's, that seems like the easiest descriptor. Mm-hmm. I could, I could go through their hair color and their shirt color, but like it, we, we could also just cut to the chase and I could say it's the two black kids, but like, I've had that experience of where I've said that and white moms are just like, <gasps> Uh, oh my gosh you said that loud like yeah. like, like you didn't know like you didn't know that and like <laughs> they didn't know it right it is it's it's pretty funny um you know um I did a dating site years and years ago and um I don't he, he asked you know who are, I said well you'll notice me because I'll be probably the only black person in the space it was you know we were going to Humphreys downtown San Diego and um he said well why did you have to say that I'm like well, because that's the easiest way to find me. Yeah. Like if you're going in there, because I had I, my, had my hair dyed blonde, I said, I could have said I was a blonde, but that was going to really throw you off. And so, you know, we, we really just have to start using, you know, those descriptors more so that people are desensitized to the negative kind of deficit uh, ideology that has been associated with them. Yeah. And, you know, where do you, where do you think that this negative association of talking about race is stemming from like why and and I have to say I, I feel like this is a mostly uniquely white issue also mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I feel it like is. black people are totally fine talking about race yeah and most people of color are I mean yeah. you know Asian people so um uh, Hispanic people I yeah. think it is a largely white issue and I think that because um we haven't really had any kind of white folks haven't had any real reconciliation about yeah. the shame of the history of whites in America. And I think that that is, it's not only harmful to people of color, but it's harmful to white people as well, that because there hasn't been any healing, mm-hmm. any racial healing, that any talk about that brings up all the, all this history and all these unresolved mm-hmm you know, feelings and, and, and just beliefs about the past. And until we can reconcile that, I don't think that it's ever going to be really comfortable for white folks to, and I'm generalizing a lot here, right. But for white folks who struggle with this conversation until there is a reconciliation and where you're able to separate yourself and say, okay, I wasn't a part of creating the problem, but I've got to be part of the solution. And the solution is not separation. Yeah. We we cohab we are living together, and you know, and what I'm what we're seeing is this um, willingness to actually destroy our democracy to you know, in order not to have these conversations. Yeah, like we'd rather destroy yeah. the country we live in yeah. than actually reconcile, which is is crazy to me. I I, yeah. I I can't wrap my head around it at all. I can't either. You, you were talking about this, you know, white people having a hard time reconciling this. And I feel like you talked about something in the book that relates to this, which is this idea of non-ness, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So white being the default mm-hmm. and anything else that isn't white, it's almost like the way that we call ethnic food, ethnic food, as if mm-hmm. white isn't an ethnicity. Right. And I think white people are so clueless about the fact that we are we are a culture, we have cultural norms, we have foods and traits. And instead we just think we're the default and everything else is Mm non-white or Mm -hmm. other. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, I think of whiteness as like the water that the fish swims in, that the fish yes. is in it all day, that it's completely unaware that it's in water, right? Yeah. Until it gets taken out of the water. Yeah. And then it, and then it's like, it feels like it's dying, you know, cause literally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so the notion of non-ness was just that it was, it was being looking around and constantly being described by what I'm not. So yeah. referring to me as non-white. Yeah. As if, you know, white is the norm right. or non-English speaker instead of a second language learner. I mean, yeah. language matters. And when you, when you non-essential, you know, mm-hmm. all those things matter. And so when, when I wrote that uh, training initially, and it's kind of evolved into a lot more and this concept is that we have to start thinking about how we're using language and the impact. So I don't want to be described as non-white. I want to be described by what I am, not by what I'm not. Yes. And, and that's how we begin to create space. And it's such an easy fix yeah. If, if, if we were just more cognizant about the words that we were using. I think so too. And I, I feel like if white people can better understand that we are bringing things to the table, mm-hmm. negative and positive culturally, mm-hmm. we're less insecure and fragile about it. Right. Yes. Like I, I think about, <laughs> I remember a family member who will go unnamed <laughs> um, being upset because they were a teacher and their school was having a multicultural feast for the teachers. And they were like, well, what am I supposed to bring? And it's like, this is the problem that you don't even recognize that you have a culture Mm -hmm. that the cultural, you know, food is such a, you know, it's such a small aspect of culture, but it, you know, that we actually Mm -hmm. do have foods that hot dogs and hamburgers are not default foods. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that, like you, you have a culture, and, Absolutely. and but instead of recognizing her, her own culture, she was defensive and yes. sensitive. Yeah, and, and then and then when you get in that space, then you want to deny that for other people who are yes. clear about who who their culture, what yes. their culture is, right? Yeah, and I think one of the one of the things that we do consistently in our work is really help our white clients to name their culture to kind of mm. bring what has been unconscious, really subconscious for so long and bring it out into consciousness so that, because once you can name it and look at it, then you begin to understand what your culture is. But that is one of the hardest questions ever, which is, you know, what is your culture? And and when I was teaching at the university, my white students, you know, they had to do a whole paper on this and they were like, we don't have a culture. I'm like, of course you do. Uh You know, of course we all do. Uh There's no, my culture, you know, and I think that the problem is, is that we we've tied so many stereotypical things to culture and stereotypes come out of some, you know, truths and some things, um, but they, they don't define, they shouldn't be the only things that define you. And so, you know, when I talk about my culture as an example, I grew up in West Hollywood. I, I went to the beach. I went to Santa Monica beach every day in the summer. I body, I, I swam, mm-hmm. I body surfed. I was a junior lifeguard. I did mm-hmm. all the things that black people and I'm putting them in quotes, yeah. you know, don't do, we don't swim. We don't do yeah. that. Well, if we understand the history of why blacks don't swim, then you understand ah. that we were not allowed to swim, which is right. why we don't swim, not because we couldn't swim. And And so my culture, you know, was kind of a surfer, skateboarder culture. That's what I did growing up. And those are the people I spent time with. And it's so not, you know, I like, I like um, country music. You know, I went to school and I had a rodeo team my first year of college at my school. So, you know, the things that 
there is all this intersectionality that we don't make room for. It's like, you know, you look at me and I've got to like hip hop, you know, I got to like, I got to like rap. I got to like, you know, blues Uh I got, and I may like those things, but the idea that I'm, that it's so singular Mm -hmm. is, is what's problematic. Yeah. That there's no room. I'm in a box. And every time I surprise you by doing something, you're like, you're surprised. Well, you shouldn't be because you don't know me. Right. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Well, talk us through, you mentioned before the RIR, talk us through, mm-hmm. I, you go into great detail um, about it in the book, but what does RIR stand for and how can this be a tool or a pillar in our conversations? Absolutely. So the uh, when I think about compassionate dialogue, I would say that is the what, and then the RIR is the how. Mm-hmm. And so the RIR is recognize, interrupt, repair. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted an easy acronym that people could remember mm-hmm. and then uh, be able to just... Um, like be able to pull, because I think that's also part of it. When you have these tough conversations, you know, I would say I'm a genius 10 minutes after the fact, right? right? But in the moment, I can't think of anything. So the protocol yes. actually really helps us stay grounded and centered yeah. so that we can um, participate. So the first R recognize is really more about self-reflection. I think when things happen to us, our energy, we have a reaction, but we don't, we know we have it and it it begins to guide us. And so we become focused on what's happened externally, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just taking a few seconds and really recognizing, okay, what is it triggering inside me? And that's important because if it triggers anger, then I know that my typical anger response without me riding my emotional wave (laughs) is not going to be super effective in a conversation. But because I know that it's triggered anger, then I know that I need to do some of my own strategies Mm -hmm. before I interrupt because um, what, because what I want to do is interrupt from a place of curiosity, Mm -hmm. interrupt from a place of, of um, really, really seeking to understand instead of blaming and shaming or accusing or judging, right? Because mm-hmm. the minute I do any of those other things, you're on the defensive and there's no way that we can have any kind of meaningful interaction. And so the recognize is I recognize what's happening in my body. I recognize, I name a feeling that's with mm-hmm. that. And then I, and then I have to really think about um, is, is if I don't mitigate this feeling, am I going to have the interaction I want? And if the answer is no, then I just got to breathe. And if the answer is yes, and I can engage. And when I'm ready to engage, then I can enter the interrupt, which is the I. Yeah. And it says, you know, first things first, let's start with inquiry. Let's ask questions. Let's make sure that what I heard is what you meant. Let's, yeah. let's be sure of intent, you know, because yeah. it may have had an impact on me, but that may not have been your intent. So we can resolve yeah. some of those things really quickly. Um, and then when it gets deeper, if I, if I'm really just too much in my feelers and I can't ask a question, then I can talk about the impact. It's mm-hmm. like, wow, that really hurt my feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what your intention was? Mm-hmm. And then I can put it back for them to explain. But the idea is that you want the person or the issue, you want them to be the ones who are, who are doing the, who is doing the talking, because when you're doing the talking, you can only be in defense mode. Yes. Right. And so I want the other person to tell me so that I am crystal clear on what the intent is. Right. And then once we have that, and then I guess the third way to interrupt is to also just share another perspective, like, Hey, Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I can see that. But you know what my experience with this has been. Mm-hmm. And so I'm offering that, you know, as many people as there are in the world, that's as many perspectives as there are. Mm-hmm. Right. And so those are the three ways that we can interrupt and all three lead us to having a more compassionate um, conversation with the person. And then 
the R, the last R is repair. And that's, that's a really tricky one because I always say that repair only ever has to happen when you live in the same household, because mm. you can only, you know, go to your corners for so long and not talk before you got to figure out how mm-hmm. to re-engage and live together. But when you're working with someone, you can avoid people forever. And, and I say that, you know, when people talk about one another, it's because they haven't spoken to them. And when you have spoken to them, there's no need to talk behind someone's back. And so the repair says, okay, you and I just had this interrupt maybe Mm -hmm. a day ago or a week ago or a month ago. And the next time we see each other, rather than kind of avoiding or tiptoeing around, we just, we just lean right back in. So I may say to you, Hey, thanks so much, Kristen, for just being willing to to talk to me about that. I know it was a hard conversation, but I really, I appreciate you listening to me and hearing my perspective. But what we've done in that moment is that we have normalized that conflict is actually a, a, a normal and a, a part of our daily engagement if we're willing to lean in and mm-hmm. that we can survive it. Like, yes, having a conflict is not the end of the world. It's actually yeah. what makes the world turn is it makes, it makes us better when we can come on the other side of that. So um, the repair is important, but I also want to say that repair is not always a happy ending. Sometimes repair is divorce. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, you, you, you get to a point where you've interrupted and you've talked and you realize, Mm -hmm. you know what, Um, this relationship no longer serves me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, thank you. And Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I can be, you know, friends with you anymore or, mm-hmm. you know, or married to you anymore or, <laughs> or work yeah. for you anymore. Yeah. I mean, it goes across the gamut, you know, yeah. but the repair is it's a resolution that where we seek to stay connected as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that we are respecting ourselves and the other, and the other person or the institution. Yeah. I really, what I love about that, that interrupt um, phase is this idea of putting it back on the other person to clarify what they're saying, because I think so many times people say offhand things or passive aggressive things Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, in their communication style. I mean, American culture is very indirect, right? We're Mm -hmm. we're very indirect. We communicate in all these kinds of ways that get us in trouble, but really (laughs) to hold people accountable for the things they say, you know, like, I, what I hear you saying sounds right. right. You know, it it sounds like you're saying this about a particular race, or it sounds like you're saying this about a particular gender, right? Or it sounds like you're saying this about the trans experience. Am Mm -hmm. I getting that right? And a lot of times when that's reflected back to people, they recognize how bad they sound. Right. Right, right. And, and, and the thing is when, when the whole thing about the protocol is that we're not actually trying to change behavior we we mm-hmm. are seeking to understand and ideally mm-hmm. though is that when you reflect back and someone can hear what they say mm-hmm. if it's truly not their intent then they can change their own behavior yeah right yeah. i'm not Absolutely. trying to change you but i'm giving you the yeah. opportunity to think about and know that your words have an impact yeah and um and you may not want to change but you but you may if it's yeah. presented the right way. And that's where we want to go. But if nothing else, what you now know is that you don't get to say that without somebody holding you accountable. And I think that's the biggest piece is that people go through this world saying some pretty heinous stuff yeah. and um, and they're never held accountable for it. Yeah. And they need to be held accountable to say, yeah. it's not that easy. You're not going to get away with it. And yeah. I'm not going to let you. But that means that a lot of us, because if, you know, if we were to take a poll of Americans who 
uh, like conflict, who would willingly enter conflict, there may not be a whole lot of hands up, right? Yeah. And so um, it's an invitation for all of us to to redefine what conflict means and yeah. understand that it's necessary for us to grow and move forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and I loved I, that was another part of the book that I was highlighting is this, this idea that like conflict is not it is survivable and is not is not necessarily bad. Right. It, it does move us forward. It does. And it doesn't, I just think it's gotten a bad rap. You know, yeah. I think, I think that, that there's always some level of conflict in our lives. I, I, I think the reason why we live in houses is because there was a conflict between living in nature without <laughs> roofs over our head and yeah. we resolve the conflict. I mean, like I kind of see it that way is that it's a natural um, part of living in this world in a society with, with all different kinds of people. And yeah. so rather than avoid it and let things just kind of spiral out of control, we really have an invitation now to lean into it and, mm-hmm. and be a part of making our society a better place to live together. I mean, that's, it's, you know, that's what I keep focusing on is that yeah. we've got to figure out how to do this together. It, mm-hmm. It's not, it's not me against you. It's not, it's, you know, it's, it's us. And, uh, um, the United States is us, you yes. us, you know, it's like, totally. it's not an accident, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, but we, but we're so divided now and, and we have to figure out how we can bridge those gaps. And again, it's not about us agreeing. It's about us understanding, seeking to understand each other and realizing that we may not agree on a hundred percent, but that's okay because I can still love and respect you. Yeah. You talked in the book too about choosing not to engage in the sub circumstances. When when do mm-hmm. you know? Okay, this is not you know me engaging is not going to be valuable or it could be dangerous to me or yeah. you know. Well, the dangerous part is very easy. If I feel like I'm physically unsafe or you know emotionally mm-hmm. unsafe, then yeah. I not only for myself but I would not recommend that anybody engage. You know, yeah. um, especially you know women. Um, you know, you know different. Um, different groups of people, you know, sexual around sexual orientation and gender and stuff like that. And so, um, but so that that's a given, but then I think there's also times where there, where someone is just trying to, you know, as they say in the UK, take the piss, like they're just really just trying to wind you up and yeah, it's not, I don't have the energy. There's too many people who really want to have the conversation and really want to engage and grow together that's where my energy will go 100% of the time. And I just don't have energy for folks who just want to, um, who want to cause trouble. You know, right. if that's your goal, they're going to do that. And and yeah. no matter what I say, it doesn't matter what I say, it's yeah. not going to matter anyway. So I think that those are the times. And also, you know, I think that there's, if more people carry the load around this conversation, then there would be less fatigue around this conversation for people who traditionally and traditionally people of color who carry the load of leading this work. Yeah. Um, And so I completely agree. I, I do feel like it is important for white people to step into these conversations more, because as you said, the load is, you know, the load is, has traditionally been on people of color to have these conversations, difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. But then I think then you have would be white allies, then putting another burden on their black friends of like, okay, now I'm ready to have these conversations. It's you, you're, yeah. you know, you're going to be the one because you're my friend of color. And yeah, I just, I would only imagine that becomes very exhausting. Yeah, it does. And I, and I think that there's a, you know, there's a re- responsibility for white allies to do their own homework. Yeah, um, you know, to, to because there's it, 
it's not like we're not living in the information age where almost anything that you want to know is available. Where can I find information on this? Right, right. And then also, I think what needs to happen, you know, we talk about this notion of affinity groups and then um, of being able to have these conversations with you know, other white people, yeah, right? And 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 finding your tribe in that mm-hmm. too, to kind of process some of those things. And it's not to say that you can't have interracial dialogue. I mean, that's absolutely crucial. Yeah. But I think that, you know, sometimes it's good to just have those conversations. And then when you find out, you know, what you know, you don't like, you. I don't know what I don't know, but then mm-hmm. there's a point that, you know, you don't know. And that's mm-hmm. when you start bringing in people and you start asking questions and you start kind of mm-hmm. leaning on other people. But some of the initial groundwork has to be like, I get requests all the time. Well, what should I be reading? I'm like, really? Like, I can tell you. And, you know, if it's, if it's really important to you, you also, like when you want to know how to do something else, you figure it out. And so, right. you know, who are the top, you know, authors right now? What is the mm-hmm. national conversation that's being had, you know, that's being had in communities of color um, yeah. that you could follow and, what are the groups that you can join to learn more uh, yes. to, to be a part of the conversation? So it's it's both. I think that there is a level, though, of responsibility uh, that's been let go and kind of, well, my, my friend doesn't have time to talk to me, so I get to let it go. And I think that is probably fundamentally my issue with allyship in the first place mm-hmm. is that, um, you know, allies still um, that terminology still uh, assumes that it's not your problem. Mm-hmm. It assumes that it's like you're helping me, mm-hmm. like you're lending your hand. And and if that's where you start, that's great. I think people have to start somewhere. But we really talk about and I talk about the, in the book is that we need to talk about co-conspirators, people yes. who believe when you're a co-conspirator, this is your problem, too. You know that yes. this racial issue going on yes. in the U.S. is not just about the, you know, the communities of color. It's about you, too, as a white person. Totally. And so. Um, I, you know, I, I'm really encouraging us rethinking that, that language and say, like, understand that, you know, you can be an ally, but also understand what that means to be an ally, as opposed to owning that this is your problem too. Like, this is our issue to solve together. Yes. It's yeah. not my problem as a black woman to solve, and you're going to help me do this. Right. Totally. Absolutely. I mean, I have, I have black children. I have white children. I think this is a problem for all my children, right? right like right. if we don't fix this, this is a problem for everyone. Right, 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 yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, there's no way, there's no other way around it. And, and so that ownership is crucial though, too, because when you feel that you have ownership, then you're actually willing to do the work that's yeah. required to, you know, to make change happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and I, I, appreciate what you're saying about like, I feel like when you're at maybe a 101, 201 at mm-hmm. education, as you said, there's a vast amount of resources online. That is not, you know, the time for you to go to your black friend and be like, well, teach me about yes. the history of, you know, like, no, I, I just, I would imagine that that just gets tiring. Oh. Like, you know, you want to be in friendships where you're talking about other things besides like, okay, now we're going to have the race talk because. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and I can just tell you that anyone who starts a conversation with me of my friends with teach me, we're going to have a really deep conversation, right? Because that's not my job. My job is not yeah. to teach you. Now, if you want to understand something that I've done, or if you want to, you know, but, but it's also this, it's a fine line too, because it's like being asked to 
well, what, what, you know, what does this mean? Well, I can tell you what George Floyd meant to me. Mm-hmm. I can't speak for the black community. I, I, I have an idea. And so, you know, when it's also being very clear that when you are engaging with, you know, your, your friends of color, that you're asking about their experience, because that's a very different conversation. If you want to know mm-hmm. how I felt after it, I got lots to say mm-hmm. about it. But the mm-hmm. minute someone says, you know, you know, what does this mean for like, I don't know. Like I, that, I have no idea. Can you speak for the entire community? Yeah, and yet, and yet, you know, uh, groups of color are constantly asked to do that to constantly. to 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 be the voice. And so it's like, yeah. well, you know, I got one friend who doesn't agree with this, so it must be you know false for everybody. Or right. I got, and and that is the problem. And you know, that goes back to kind of you know when I think about um, you know the founding of this country and this you know where white folks in this country have always had the privilege of being individuals. Yes. Of always being able to like what your neighbor does, does is not your not white neighbor does not mm-hmm. reflect on you. Right. But for me, it's, it's never yeah. been that way when something, you know, literally from, there was a, uh, an article and it started off rapper murder, you know, like a rapper did it. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like, Oh, I literally yeah. was like, please don't let it be anybody really famous. Don't let it be anybody who they, and and then I read the article and I, I'm like third paragraph down and I don't have any race. And I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. I'm like, there's no race mentioned. There's no name. And I'm like, I can promise you that this is a white kid, but it Mm -hmm. took me three days of searching Yahoo news to get to the bottom. And it turns out that it's a, it's a white kid from like Salt Lake city. This is years and years ago, probably 10, 15 years ago. And, um, and he he liked to rap. He, he wasn't even a rap, but but imagine like so again, stereotypes, right? Yeah. So you got this headline. Yeah. And of course, everybody, just like me, thinks it's a black person. Yeah. And yeah. if you were not determined like I was to go figure mm-hmm. out because you because you didn't see the normal symbols that would have been in there that tell mm-hmm. you, um, then you would believe here we go again, another black person killed a white, a white girl, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and so, you know, our, our society has done a really good job of keeping these uh, stereotypes and this fear alive and well, Oh yeah, um, the media, you know, feeds into, you know, the fears. And if you don't have family like you or friends or, or people who can on a regular basis contradict the narrative mm-hmm. that you've been fed, then you can't help because of the way the mind works, but to buy into all yeah. the garbage. Yeah. And so I'm a big proponent of contact theory. Like if you want to know some, like engage and engage authentically, and you will begin to say, you know, when you love me, you can't believe the things that they say about black people when you're in relationship with me. Yeah. Um, because you're always yeah. going to come back. And so the more and more that you're willing to diversify yes. your network of people that you engage with, the, the, the more kind of global you become. Yeah. And, and, you know, I love that too, of, of like also diversifying the black voices that you're listening to. Right. Yes. Because I feel like what we see so often is there's a black voice that is in line with a particular ideology right it might be dismissing racism and then that person becomes you know i mean we the see spokesperson, Owens, yeah. we, mm-hmm. you know they become the spokesperson and then that's the only black voice that you know it's that confirmation bias, bias. <laughs> she's saying that racism yeah. you know is you know, white privilege doesn't exist and so i i agree with her here's a black person that said it right as and we see that the yeah. diversity of thought 
Yeah. And we see that every day and that, yeah. and it is, I, you, you and I said it exactly the same time it's confirmation bias. And what they know yeah. about confirmation bias is that um, it, it's about an emotional connection. People are always trying to support their own beliefs and ideologies. And so if I can find someone that supports yeah. it, I'm going to lean and, and also serves the purpose of saying, see, I have a black friend and my black friend um, thinks like I do. Yeah. And so that, that notion of diversifying who you're listening to, I mean, I do that all the time. I need to, I don't want people around me all the, that only think like I think, because yeah. there's no room for me to grow in that. So I really, you know, my closest friends are always going to um, push me and challenge me and help me to become the person that I ultimately, you know, want to be yeah. in it. And I, I see it as a journey, not really a destination. So when I say ultimately want to be until the day I yeah. die, I think I'm going to yes. be growing in this department. Yeah. Um, but I'm also very clear about of that. And I know that I've got blind spots. I know that there's things that I'm still working on and I'm conscious of them and I'm working on them. And, and that's what I'm, that's what the book is asking of us. It's not saying yeah. that you're going to get there and by, you know, you finish reading this, you're going to be a master, but yeah. what it's going to say is that maybe you're going to be willing to enter into some of these uh, difficult spaces and that you're going to, um, that you're going to keep compassion on the table, yeah. that you understand that like your success um, is directly directly impacts mine mm -hmm. and that, that we really are interconnected and, and that individual, that individuality, that idea, that mindset is actually very destructive yeah. for us, um, as a society. Absolutely. I love it. I, I just, I, I can't say it enough. I loved how practical your book was. Um, I loved, I mean, it was a very quick and easy read. Yeah. Um, I loved the, you know, kind of communication aspect of it, but I really did love your focus on compassion. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought that yeah. that was so huge. Well, thank yeah. you so much. Um, where can people find your book? Well, we are on Amazon. We yep. are in Barnes and Noble, Book Baby, Goodreads. Um, so, you know, you could, I think pretty much wherever you want to you want to yeah. find the book, you can usually find it. And if your bookstore, your local bookstore doesn't have it, they can easily get it. If you get the ISBN number off the back of the book, they can order it um, because the publisher is a publisher that supports um, small books uh, stores as well. So awesome. And where can yeah. people find you online? They can find me at drnancydome.com. It's drnancydome.com. And that is my, um, my Twitter, my Instagram, and my Facebook, all the same. Awesome. I'll have it uh, leaked up under our conversation as well. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. It's always nice to talk to you and I appreciate having this conversation. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a heads up, we're therapists, but we're not your therapists. This podcast is not a substitute for therapy, and by making it, we're not rendering psychological or other professional services. If you need therapy, we recommend you track down someone to help. Join us online for more of the conversation in our Selfie Community Facebook group or on Instagram at, at Selfie Podcast. 